Well, good morning, everybody. This is the uh, last week of our, I guess, our uh, January pause on the, the book of Luke. So Stuart's going to be picking up again next week. Uh, so we get back to what our, I guess you call it our regularly scheduled program. Uh, so this week is uh, kind of the last topic as we go you know, across these various doctrines of, of, of Scripture. Um, and this one's not so much a doctrine as it is a just, I think, a really important subject. It's something called textual criticism. And what textual criticism is, is it's, a, it's the, the science, really, of being able to look at existing manuscripts or existing documents that have been copied down through the, the ages and be able to get back to what the original actually said. And so they've got all kinds of laws and rules and things like that um, that they've worked through in order to, um, to do that. And so, you know, it, it gets into aging, you know, da- or dating documents. They work on, um, you know, family trees of documents, especially when it comes to the Bible, because the Bible is, you know, the most prolific um, document or set of documents, you know, in the history of man, best-selling book of all time, um, Etc. So there's a lot of a uh, lot of data to to, to go with it. Um, so what I'll start off with is, in case there's anybody that's asking the question, you know, or thinking in your mind, okay, you know, what's the big deal? Why, you know, why would why do we need to spend time looking at something like this? Let me, you know, I was I was surfing the interwebs the other day, and I came across this. Um, actually, I actually copied it this morning, but. Um, I came across this uh, article, and I thought it was interesting, so I wanted to share a little bit with you. Let's see. Boy, that was an anticlimactic thing. There we go. Let's try that. Boom. All right. This is the beginning of the article. I'm, I'm, I've got about five paragraphs, and I'm, I'm going to kind of skip around a little bit. They wave their Bibles at passersby, screaming their commend- uh, Condemnations of homosexuals. They fall on their knees, worshiping at the base of granite monuments to the Ten Commandments while demanding prayer in school. They appeal to God to save America from their political opponents, mostly Democrats. They gather in football stadiums by the thousands to pray for the country's salvation. They are God's frauds, cafeteria Christians who pick and choose which Bible verses they heed with less care than they exercise in selecting side orders for lunch. They are joined by religious rationalizers, fundamentalists who, unable to find scripture supporting their biases and beliefs, twist phrases and modify translations to prove they are honoring um, the Bible's words. This is no longer a matter of personal or private faith. We're going to go back through this very, very quickly. I just want to make a couple of comments on it, but I want to go through the whole thing first. No television. This skips down a little bit. No television preacher has ever read the Bible. Neither has any evangelical um, politician, neither has the Pope, neither have I, and neither have you. At best, we've all read a bad translation, a translation of translations of translations of hand-copied copies of copies of copies of copies, and on and on hundreds of times. About 400 years passed between the writing of the first uh, Christian manuscripts and their compilation into the New Testament, that's the same amount of time between the arrival of the pilgrims on the Mayflower and today. None of this mattered for centuries because Christians were certain God had guided the hand not only of the original writers, but also of those copyists. But in the past hundred years or so, tens of thousands of manuscripts of the New Testament have been discovered dating back centuries. And what biblical scholars now know is that later versions of the books differ significantly from earlier ones. In fact, even copies from the same time periods differ from each other. There are more very, quote, there are more variations among our manuscripts than there are words in the New Testament, says Bart Ehrman, a groundbreaking biblical scholar and professor at the University of North Carolina who has written many books on the New Testament. (sighs) All right. So, where do you guys think I found that article? What little esoteric, little unknown blog did I have to dig, go to to dig that up? What do you think? Huh? New York Times. New York Times. Uh, not too far off. It was Newsweek. Okay. So, and, and if you look at the date, it does date back to 2014. Um, but I thought this was about the most um, eloquent of, of all of the, the ones that I found. 
So what they're doing here is they're going back, and to be honest, their, um, their flow of argumentation doesn't, it's not very coherent. I, I don't think he did a very good job of it. But what he's trying to do is, you know, talking about all these um, modern issues, homosexuality, et cetera, and so forth, and then, um, you know, referring to us as God's frauds, and then down at the bottom, this is no longer a matter of personal private faith. Well, it's never been a matter of personal private faith. It's always been a matter of truth and honoring God. And any Christian, you know, every Christian, um, should not, cannot keep your faith, quote unquote, personal. It is our duty, our responsibility to make it known. And that is why we're here, is to, um, to evangelize, to bring other people to, to faith. So anyway, but this is what he tries to base his whole argumentation on. He, he does all this silly stuff, you know, um, uh, insulting things up at the beginning of the article. But this is really what he's trying to base it on. He's saying that no modern person has ever actually read the Bible because um, it's a bad translation of translations of translations of translations. Now, let's just stop there real quick. What's wrong with that statement? What do we know is wrong with that statement? to be. Excellent. So what's a translation? It's moving from one language to another, right? So we have, it was originally written, the New Testament was originally written in Greek. And so there are Greek manuscripts and they are translated into English or they are translated into French or German or whatever, or Latin. Um, The way this reads is they went from Greek to Swahili to African, to French, to Japanese, to Esperanto, to, you know, Vulcan, and then finally over to, I'm sorry, Ewok, and then finally over to, to English, okay? So the first thing that you can tell is this person really doesn't know what they're talking about because they're saying translations of translations of translations, okay? And then copies of copies of copies, and um, we're going to talk about that um, yeah, we'll talk about that in a little more detail here in, here in a few minutes. Then he says about 400 years passed between the writing of the first um, Christian manuscripts and their compilation into the New Testament. No, they were written in the first century A.D., the mid-first century A.D. Um, they were gradually pulled together. Um, this was actually a separate, separate class, but I ran out of time. Um, so the way our canon came together, I'll give you kind of the 50,000-foot view, is uh, Paul began to write his uh, letters to the various churches. They were being pulled together very, very quickly. Um, letter to the Colossians, the Ephesians, the Romans, etc. They were pulled together very quickly, and they were put into a what you would call Paul's body of, of work, okay, or the Pauline corpus. Okay, corpus means body. And so Paul's body of work, and they were very early on, we're talking within a couple of decades of Paul writing these things, they were circulated together. Okay, Parallel to that is you have um, four um, gospel writers who wrote four different accounts of the same gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They also very quickly, once John John was the last one that was written, once John was written, those four were pulled together, recognized as authoritative and inspired by God, and they were also circulated together. And then early in the second century, the Pauline corpus and the fourfold gospel, which is what they referred to it as the diatessaron, um, those two things were pulled together and began to circulate together. So there you have, oh, along with Acts. Acts was in there as well. And so with those things together, you have the heart and soul of the New Testament. And then there were a little bit later, there were some uh, books recognized, you know, James and Second Peter were recognized as, as Scripture, and you have the, the New Testament. By and large, it was within 100 years of, of Christ's death, but there were some, some of the details were worked out over the years. And then we have, by the mid-4th century, the 300s, um, we have it definitively being circulated together as inspired scripture, recognizing the, the stuff. Does it make sense? Any questions on that? 
Sorry, like I said, I was planning on that being a separate um, separate topic altogether, but um, like I said, I ran, ran out of weeks. All right. So 400 years passed. So we know that this that, that, that's wrong. So just in these two paragraphs, there's a bunch of, of factual errors. Um, so there's a historical ignorance there. And then uh, none of this matters for centuries because God was certain, you know, so... Um, Past hundred years or so, tens of thousands of manuscripts of the New Testament have been discovered. He's correct about that. And what's happening is, you know, going back to, um, you know, going back even, say, 500 years, when we had, you know, the first English Bible being written, it was a pretty good um, translation of the New Testament. And the more manuscripts we find, the, the finer and finer the tuning is to help us to get back to what the actual wording of the, the original wording of the New Testament is. And every few years, our major um, uh, Bible publishers, ESV and NIV, et cetera, they, they, they fine-tune some things because as we find new manuscripts, we, we tweak things just a little bit. And we're, but like I said, we're getting closer and closer to, to the original. Okay, now that shouldn't you know? So nobody should be concerned about whether or not you're actually reading God's word because you are. Okay, and we're going to talk. We're going to kind of quantify some of this in in just a minute. All right. Um, And then we have this character Bart Ehrman. Now Bart Ehrman is a brilliant scholar. Um, Knows Greek very well. Knows the New Testament very well. He's a he's a, a textual critic. Um, but Bart Ehrman fell away from the faith, and he became an agnostic slash um, atheist. And what he realized, and, and he's written some really good papers. Um, I've got one of his books that is a standard on New, New Testament trans, transmission. But, um, but what he did is he realized that he could make money by, and make a lot of money and sell a lot of books if he presented facts out of context allow people to draw all these crazy conclu- conclusions. And that's exactly what he did. Um, think about what happens like every Easter. What do you start hearing about, say, on the Discovery Channel every Easter? What's that? But yeah, all, all kinds of weird, weird stuff. But then you hear about the Gospel of Judas, the Gospel of Thomas, and the things that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Um, and Christmas, you start hearing how you know, Christianity was pulled from, you know, stolen from pagan religions and, you know, and things like that. So they really know how to push our buttons. I mean, they are really good at that. And nobody's better than Bart Ehrman. Yes, sir. Yeah. Yeah. I, the only thing I would say, it's not a force, it's a person. <laughs> uh, but yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, say it's satanic. It really is. It's, I think um, coordinate, coordinated through, Demonic activity, no doubt. Um, so anyway, um, there's nothing groundbreaking about, about him, but he is a, a, a really good biblical scholar. But what he does is he writes books, and again, he lets you draw your own conclusions. And so, uh, let's see. So here's a quote from Bart Ehrman. He says, uh, this is from Misquoting Jesus. Um, he says, scholars differ significantly in their estimates. Some say there are 200,000 variants known. Some say 300,000. Some say 400,000 or more. Now, does everybody know what a variant is? Okay. A variant is if you, you know, have two manuscripts and there's a word that's different, whether it's spelled different or it's positioned differently or anything, it's, that counts as a variant. Okay. Um, so we do not know for sure how many variants we have, despite impressive developments in computer technology. No one has yet been able to count them all. It's like, yeah, computers can't count that high. It's ridiculous. Anyway, uh, perhaps as I indicated earlier, it is best simply best simply best. It is best simply to leave the matter in comparative terms. There are more variations among our manuscripts than there are words in the New Testament. Okay. Now, doesn't that sound alarming? Doesn't that sound alarming? Okay, there's, I think there's a, like 138,000 and some change, 138,000 um, words in the New Testament. How many variants do you think there are that we are known right now? Give me a guess. Somebody throw a number out. 
Okay, 1.5 million. So, okay, 1.5, 138,000 variants, 1.5 million, I'm sorry, 138,000 words, 1.5 million variants. Yes, ma'am. Okay. Yeah, so, so now, why should we not be concerned about something like that? Here's why. If you have one document, one copy of a document, one manuscript, by definition, how many variants do you have? Zero. Now, you have two documents, okay, and they, they're offset, you know, three times. Let's say they get every word wrong. If there's 138,000 um, uh, words here and you get 138,000 wrong, then at most you're going to have 138,000 variants, right? But that's not the case. We might have three or four variants, okay, or we might have ten variants, something like that. The problem is we have so many manuscripts that the number of variants multiplies. So we're going to talk specifically about how many manuscripts we have, but the more manuscripts you have, the more variants you're going to have. So this cuts to uh, or demonstrates very clearly the, the lack of integrity that Dr. Ehrman has when he's reporting this sort of thing. He's being a sensationalist, and he's trying to freak everybody out because the more he freaks people out, the more books he writes, he sells, and then he has responses to. Yes, ma'am. I mean, I think you're going to get to Yeah. Yes. In very much detail. Yep. Yep. All right. Yes. Yep. Yep. We're almost there. There's, but the, here's the hero, you know, in my mind. Uh, does anybody know who um, Dr. Wallace is? Dr. Dan Wallace? Um, PhD in New Testament Greek. Uh, he, he founded a, it's called the uh, C, CSNTM. It's the Center for the Study of New Testament Manuscripts. For the last 20 years, they've run around all over the world um, with, with um, high-resolution digital cameras photographing every manuscript that they can get their hands on. I, was, I just listened to a lecture this morning, and kind of he had an update that they think they're about 20% of the way through with all the manuscripts that are out there. There, again, there's so many manuscripts. And so what they do is they go in and, you know, they, they set these, they go in these monasteries and all this stuff kind of all over the world, um, generally in the Middle East. And they'll set them up and they'll start going through and, and photographing page by page with these white gloves and everything on. Well, in going through doing this work, they've actually found a whole bunch of manuscripts, you know, and they're trying, they're, they're having a hard time keeping up with kind of the demand of, the, of what, needs to be, what needs to be photographed. But he's seen some amazing stuff. Um, I love that third point, and it, it's not really relevant to the class, but I just, I love the story. Uh, he learned Greek from a textbook that he had actually written himself. Now, I know that sounds really weird, but what happened was he uh, contracted, he wrote the textbook, was a professor, um, I think he was at DTS at this time, at Dallas Theological Seminary. Um, he, he contracted viral encephalitis, and it began to mess with his memory. And he said he couldn't, he got to a point where he couldn't even remember who the president was. Now, that might be a blessing, depending on how you look at it. But, um, you know, he, there's certain things that he couldn't, and he forgot Greek, but he was also teaching Greek. And so he actually went back to his own textbook and learn from himself how to, uh, you know, the Greek language. And I, I just, I, I think that's the coolest thing. But he's a brilliant, absolutely brilliant man. Uh, and then and a lot of what I'm about to talk about comes from, I've probably seen 15 or 20 of his lectures. And I, I like the way he, he does the, goes about it. So I kind of borrow the structure from him. So anyway, what he says is there's two attitudes that we have to avoid when we respond to this, like this issue of variance and uncertainty and all of that. So the first is absolute despair. Um, although some of the claims of people like Airmen are technically true, they are incomplete and as conclu conclusions are grossly exaggerated. So there's more to the story. He said, but we also have to avoid absolute certainty. The idea that we have like a stenographer's copy of what Jesus said, you know, back 2,000 years ago. He said that naive fundamentalism is equally dangerous. The presence of transmission errors is an indisputable fact. 
but a little analysis will show that this should not be a cause for concern. Um, King James only folks um, tend to adopt this view where they're, they're um, you know, the King James is the inspired word of God. And so if you ask really one of the folks that are like big time into King James only, if you ask them, if you have a Russian that only speaks Russian and that person wants to read the inspired word of God, do they need to learn English or Greek? And they'll say they need to learn English in order to read the inspired word of God because King James is um, the inspired word. So that's a little crazy if you ask me. Um, and then Muslims adopt that view of their of their Quran. Um, but the, <laughs> the thing is, um, they have a lot of variants too. Um, I was listening to uh, um, an interview with a uh, a Christian, a Christian who was researching the Quran, and they had found all of these like textual variants, you know, throughout history, and that the manuscripts came from very, very early on, and they were getting ready to publish this into a um, uh, into a work, a scholarly work that um, you know scholars could use to kind of get back, maybe do some textual criticism on the on the Quran. And um, all of a sudden, the publisher said, no deal. I mean, they, they were, had it worked out. Everything was going great. Publisher said, no deal. And I think the idea is they wanted to, the publisher wanted to keep his head intact with the rest of his body. Because that is not the sort of thing that you tell a, a Muslim that you have er- transmission errors in the, in the Quran. Okay? Now, on the Christian side of the house, we have transmission errors. You have a new manuscript. Let's see it. We want, we want to see it because maybe we can learn something from it. And we're very open about it. And when it goes back and says, you know, Airman has done groundbreaking research and these things have been discovered. Well, they've been around for a while. Um, you guys have heard of um, uh, Erasmus, right, who um, uh, Luther kind of had a little conversation with, if you will. Um, he, he was kind of on the receiving end of some of Luther's um, uh, most uh, salty tongue, I guess, is the easy way to put it. But Erasmus was actually a brilliant scholar, um, and he wasn't really a bad guy. And what he had done is gone in and put together a a, um, a Greek New Testament, and um, he had uh, uh, textual variants. He had multiple manuscripts that were together um, and, and published that so that, that scholars could use that for um, uh, translation purposes. So that, and that goes back 500 years, right? So we, Christianity has been doing this sort of thing for a long time, right? So we're going to look at how many manuscripts do we have and how old are they? What kind of variants are we talking about? And then what issues, doctrines are at stake? All right, spreading of the documents. All right, let me take a drink of coffee. Any questions so far? Am I losing anybody? Hmm? All right. So given the nature of the documents, they would have disseminated widely on their own, but various persecutions amplified the effect. I need to blow through some of this because we're running behind. The documents were not simply copied once and then destroyed. Often the same church would have more than one copy of the same document. Thus the corruption seen in the telephone game is not applicable to the New Testament. So let me explain all this real quick. So the idea is, let's say that you go to, um, you know, you're 2,000 years ago, you go to Colossae, and they've got a, um, and maybe this is like mid-second century. So Paul would have written a letter to the Colossians like 100 years prior. And so you go there, and they have a, a copy of, they have Paul's original, um, but it is falling apart. One, because it's you know, 100 years old, but secondly, because it's been used, it's been copied, and um, it's been worn out because everybody's wanting to read this and see this. So what they have is not only uh, Paul's original, but then they've got a copy that is more readable and complete because some of Paul's, um, uh, some of what he wrote might not even be readable at this point. Okay, And so um, as this copy begins to deteriorate, they have another one. They might have 10 copies of the same, um, of the same letter. So it's not like they just had one. Then it's not like um, if I'm Colossae, 
and I, I send the letter to Stuart, who sends it to Jeremy, and so on down the line, it's, I'm in Colossae, and I blast the letter out to all of y'all. So Paul gave it to me. Paul sent it to me. It's recognizes in his scripture, and we send it out to, to basically everybody. And then what happens is, um, you know, when Chad receives it, now he copies it and sends it out. And so each of y'all may get a second copy as well, okay? Now, with the telephone game, what happens? You have a series of people. By definition, it's all in sequence. And, and I'm sure some of y'all have played this game before, but so the first person whispers a message in the first person's ear, or in the second person's ear, and then it goes on down the line. And then when you get to the end, the last person says what the message is. So you can be like, um, if a woodchuck could chuck wood, how much wood would a woodchuck chuck if a woodchuck could chuck wood? And at the end, you got, I have a blind, uh, one-eyed squirrel in my backyard, right? Something completely different. Um, you don't have that with the New Testament because it's a web, right? It's, it's all these interconnections. And so you can check for accuracy and things, things of that nature. And it's not just these people aren't taking this as a game. They believe in Holy Scripture. They want it to be correct. And so when they copy it, they do their best to copy it to, and send it out to as many people as they can. Does it make sense? Okay. All right, copies of ancient documents. This is actually really important. If you look at the top, what, four, these are all ancient historians. Um, we'll start with Herodotus. Um, Herodotus was, you know, 5th century B.C., the earliest manuscript that we have is from the first century A.D., and there's about um, we have about 75 of, of his manuscripts. Now, there is no... I know, I know of, not that I'm a Herodotus, uh, Herodotus a, a historian, scholar, or anything like that, but scholars of history do not question whether or not they have Herodotus' um, original, what he originally said. They question what he said, because he got some stuff wrong, but um, they don't question whether or not they actually have the words that he wrote. And the same with Livy, Tacitus, Suetonius, etc. And so you can look comparatively at those first four and see that, you know, not very many manuscripts remain. And then um, we also don't have them for centuries. In Suetonius's case, it looks like it's, what, eight, 800 years um, after he wrote. And we've got a little over 200 manuscripts. I'm getting a little feedback. I guess I should walk away from the speaker, huh? Okay. Um, now, let's contrast it with the New Testament. Written in the first century. Um, earliest manuscripts come from early second century. Uh, and I'll show you the early, earliest here in just a second. Early to mid second century. Manuscript count. Over 5,700 Greek, um, Greek manuscripts. 5,700, over 10,000 Latin manuscripts, okay? The New Testament was being translated into Latin early in the second century, I mean, so very early on. Um, and those are actually, uh, they're viable, useful um, uh, manuscripts for two reasons. One is accuracy, but then the other one is Anytime you translate from one language to another, there's a little bit of interpretation there, and so it help us, helps us with how they were interpreting back then. And then finally, there's uh, over 10,000 manuscripts in Coptic, in um, Syriac, in Old Iranian, a whole bunch of different, um, a whole bunch of different languages. And so we have a ton of manuscripts um, going back to as early as the early second century. Now, most of these are going to be a couple of hundred years later, but there's a, a broad, broad spread there. And then our first complete New Testament um, is um, Codex Sinai, I can never say it. It starts with an S, Sinai to kiss, um, from the fourth century. And then um, even if all of those manuscripts went away, we could pretty much assemble the New Testament based on just the church fathers, the church fathers going back and quoting the New Testament so often 
there, there was over a million quotations from the church fathers. And so what can happen is, okay, we don't, let's say we don't have a copy of a particular chapter and verse of Colossians, but we've got a quote over here from, you know, some church, you know, whoever, who might be Justin Martyr or whatever. Um, and we can still compare that because we know that he was, he was reading that letter back then too. Does that make sense? So I'm a data guy. It's what I do. That's a lot of data. And so you can be very confident that we're getting back to the, um, to the original. We're very, very close. And just very quickly, uh, sources of English translations. You can see over the centuries how we've, how we've progressed. Um, King James 1611, um, good translation. Nothing wrong with it. Um, good translation. Um, but there was, you know, it came from six manuscripts. The revised version, and that, and that was in, you know, 1611. And then in the late 19th century, the revised version um, had 2,000 manuscripts. So we go from six to 2,000, okay? Big, big leap there. And now with the New English translation, the, the Net Bible, we're going all the way up to um, over 5,700 Greek. And then we have all the Latin and everything else to, to boot. Now, also look at how it's going, we're going backward in time, right? As we get farther away from the Bible, you know, from the original authors, you would think that our earliest manuscripts would, would go later as well. But we actually went from the 10th century all the way down to the early, early to mid, uh, mid-century, uh, second century with the NET Bible. Now, if you're really into this kind of thing, textual criticism, that sort of thing, transmissions and things of that nature, the Net Bible is a really good, good one to have because when you, you know, you have a study Bible and it, it, it has like explanations in terms of what the, the text means, um, it, you know, the footnotes and things of that nature. The Net Bible has um, variant notes or translation notes. And so it's really, uh, it's a really cool Bible to add alongside your, your other one if you're interested in this sort of thing. All right. This is uh, P-52. No, it's not a, a fighter plane. It's the John, Ry- uh, John Ryland's uh, Papyrus 52. Um, it, on one side of it is John 18, 31 through 33, and on the other side is 37 through 38. And so this little scrap of paper here, about the size, you know, a little bit smaller than the palm of my hand, um, it's the oldest fragment that we have of a manuscript. And like you can see here, it's from 17, dated between 117 AD and 138. Um, this actually was a really big deal when it was found um, in 1935 um, because the going uh, scholastic theory was that the Gospel of John was not written until the late 2nd century. And the idea was that it was, um, I don't want to get into philosophy, but it was, a, think of it as a compromise or a combination between um, Peter's Jewish theology and Paul's Roman or um, uh, Gentile theology, and John was seen as kind of the compromise be, be, between the two, okay? This is non-believer scholastic theories, right? And so um, they said that, that, the Gospel of John could not have been written before the very end of the of the second century, but we have a copy from early to mid um, second century, and the idea here is is this is a copy. It's not the original, and so it would have been copied from something going back to the first century. So, yes, sir. I don't know what you mean by. Sorry. <laughs> Um, that's a great question. Um, I've got a book on papyrology that I haven't um, I haven't cracked open yet, but I can bring it in for you. No, um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, it's uh, it, it's interesting. They 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 a lot, you know. They look at um, you know other uh, like forms of archaeology and stuff. They look at you know um, pot shards and you know things like that. Um, in this case, I think they're looking at, at like how the papyrus is made, um, you know, material. I mean, it's from the plant, 
um, but also the inks and um, perhaps how it was written and different different things of that nature. It's it's a kind of uh, we have a. centuries when certain kind of writing was, was more popular than others. And then they're looking at the ink type and how the ink was used. Okay, cool. Very good. Those three things together, they come up with an approximate date. Hey, he got it right. No. <laughs> th thank you. Uh, yeah, so you good? Okay, cool. All right. Uh, thank you. Um, let's see. And then... And this is Codex Sinaiticus. Hey, I said it um, without stumbling. Um, anyway, it was written in mid-4th century. It's found in 1844. Um, there's a really interesting story uh, that Dan Wallace tells, but I won't, uh, won't go into that now. Uh, so this is our oldest complete New Testament. And then, um, so let's talk about variants. Are you ready? All right, cool. Let me get another drink. All right. I'm glad I didn't wing that question too much with our, our checker here, so fact checker. All right, so let's talk about causes of variance, and these are kind of quote-unquote unintentional causes, uh, really that they, they don't impact the, the, the meaning. So there's errors in spelling, and this is the vast majority of the variance. Um, you know, I mean, I think we can all relate to that. And there's also this phenomenon called a movable new. A new, think of it as, as um, the letter N in, in Greek. It looks like a V, but it's pronounced, you know, new. Um, and so what happens is in um, many of their, um, the little word that comes right before a noun, articles. <laughs> well, I couldn't remember that word. Um, many of their articles, um, have this this movable new. Think of it as, um, you know, um, a car and apple, right? That sort of thing. And so if you change, you know, if, if I wrote something, I said a apple, um, you know, Microsoft Word might not like it very much, but you guys would understand what I'm saying, even though it's, you know, a little bit incorrect. It doesn't really mess with the meaning, um, but you have that in a ton of these variants are the what's called the movable new. So think of taking the in away from an and. There's also word order changes. So um, um, Chad threw the ball, um, you know, might be the ball through Chad, okay? But what's, what does Greek have that we don't? Why would that not be a problem in Greek? Because Greek is highly inflected. It's got, um, they, uh, a word has suffixes, in, ends in certain words, um, I'm sorry, certain letters, um, depending on whether it's the subject of a sentence or the direct object of a sentence. And so even if you flip the words around, um, you, can, you, you know what it says. Okay? And so the word order is not nearly as important in Greek as it is in English. So really that's not a big deal either. Um, insertion of an article before proper names. So it might be instead of um, Peter profess Christ, it might be the Peter possess Christ. Oh, I'm sorry, confess Christ, not possess Christ. That would be a bad thing. Um, and then we have, uh, here's an unintentional cause of uh, skipping lines. And so I'm going to show you an example of this one. This is probably my favorite example from Codex Vaticanus. I do not ask that you keep them from the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. And so if you skip the wrong line, I do not ask that you keep them from the evil one. So that is not a uh, prayer that I would want Jesus to pray on my behalf. But we know exactly what happened. You see that? So that, that could be a significant variant, but we it's... And this is a real case. This is something that is actually in Codex Vaticanus. Um, but you can tell exactly what happened. And so we know that it's missing that, that line there. We know exactly what the scribe did. So is that very a big deal? No, it's really not. Uh, fusing words together, um, dividing a single word, or confusing parallel passages. Uh, the parallel passages... Um, what happens is these scribes, they might be 
you know, copying over and, you know, the same text over and over and over again. Well, they've, maybe they've memorized Mark and now they're doing Matthew. And so they're on a piece and they're, they're, instead of going back and looking at Matthew, they're recalling from memory, but they recall Mark. So there might be a parallel passage that they can go in. So you get like a little bit of a blending between Mark, Matthew and Mark, which, you know, again, those are explainable. You can see what's going on there and they don't really impact the, the meaning. So let's do a little experiment here. Um, can you determine what this blurb means? Somebody read that for me. Right. So which one is it? Right? We, we don't know. But can you read that one? Right. Or this one. Right? Yeah. So what this gets into is context. So you can be, have a little bit of confusion, right? God is now here or God is nowhere. And if that was just by itself, you wouldn't know which way to go. But once you put it in context, you clearly know which way to go, right? There's not a doubt in your mind. So again, that's a variant that that kind of variant can happen, but, um, you know, uh, it, it doesn't really impact anything because we can explain it. Uh, there's also things like margin, uh, merging margin notes into the text. So, say you got a scribe sitting there and they're reading something, and or they're they're translating, um, translating, transcribing something, and um, they come across, you know, maybe it's the resurrection, or maybe it's uh, you know uh, one of Paul's hymns or something like that. And in the margin, they they write hallelujah or praise the Lord or you know something of that nature. You know, they're they're not impacting the text, they're just writing it off in the margin. Well, 50 years later, there's another scribe comes along, takes that same text, and they incorporate the hallelujah or the praise the Lord into, into the text. Okay? Um, there's been cases where we have the original, you know, where the scribe wrote it in the margin, and then, and then we also have the, the, where they incorporated it into the text, so it's kind of explainable. But those sorts of things are things that, that would occur. Um, again, it's it's not mysterious, you know. There's geographical clarifications. The couple that I think of are actually in the Old Testament. Um, none come to mind with the the, the New Testament, but um, in the Old Testament, there's um, like uh, um, it says in um, Genesis that Abraham pursued Lot's captors as far north as Dan. But Dan wasn't actually Dan until, what, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, okay? And then you have the, the area of Dan, you know. Actually, it would be even after that, wouldn't it? It would be um, after the time of Moses. It would be the, the tribe of Dan going in there. So Dan wasn't Dan for centuries after Abraham. And so what happened was over a period, you know, somebody was copying the book of Genesis and what they did was whatever name was in there, I think it was Laish, if I remember correctly, they translated it to Dan and um, just moved it to Dan so people would understand what it was that they were reading. Okay. Does that make sense? Okay. Doctrinal clarifications where um, there's something they might add a little, like a commentary almost, on to, you know, to kind of clarify, clarify something. Um, and then harmonization of, of parallel passages. If you know, if they're reading one passage that you know in Mark that says there was one blind man, and over in Matthew, you know, we have two blind men, then what they might try to do is, is harmonize those those two things together. Or um, if the disciples are on um, you know on the boat and the and the storm is raging, it sounds like they're saying you know kind of different things, and so they might try to harmonize those those things together. And so you can see why they would want to do that, but kind of need to leave God's word alone, I think, and just copy what we have. And then if they um, come across something that they recognize as wrong, right, because they've been translating this thing for a while, and you know, maybe they have a different copy that they're translating. You know, I keep saying translating. See, I'm pulling this, the same problem that that other guy did, right? They're copying this stuff, and... As they're copying it, they might be copying from a different uh, physical letter, and and they might run into something and say, "Oh no no no! I 
I know what that is. That's, that's actually wrong, and so they correct it. When in reality, the one they're reading now might be um, the, the correct one. Okay. All right. Um, so are any essential beliefs or doctrines at stake? Um, no. This is probably the most significant variant. And you ask yourself whether or not something is actually at stake or not. Uh, therefore, since we have been justified, this is Romans 5.1, uh, and this is the ESV translation. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So when you read this, this is a declaration of peace um, through our Lord Jesus, with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. But there's a, a variant. Um, we have a manuscript that says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, let us have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the idea there is it's a command to, um, to initiate peace. Okay, so there's, there's a distinction there. Anybody ready to punt the faith because of that? No, and that's probably the most significant one that I've seen. All right. So why is it important to be able to identify the types of errors in a particular manuscript? Because... A big number of variants means nothing. It's what are those those variants, okay? Um, what are they, and how how important are they, and what's the impact? Um, because 1.5 million times not much is not much. Yes, sir. Yeah. 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 Okay. Right. Yeah, that wouldn't that wouldn't surprise me. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Um, so why is it important to be familiar with the history of transmission of the New Testament? Testament, um, Because our children are going to school. They're going to universities, and they're, they're interacting with the stuff, especially like if they're in a, a STEM field or something, and then they go to work for a company, and they're, they're interacting with people who... Um, are, are skeptical at best. And they throw out things like this. They read Bart Ehrman because it tells, he tells them what they want to hear. And so if they don't know, um, they don't know about this stuff, it can come up, it can come as a big shock. It can come up as a big shock to us as well. You know, if, if somebody is giving us statistics saying, you know, why we can't trust the, you know, the transmission of the New Testament, it's like, well, you may have, may, may have faith in Christ, but, you know, you don't really know who Christ is because we've got no legitimate historical record of him, you know. And then they throw out all of these facts. That's a, regardless of who you are, that's a difficult thing to come to grips with, okay. But when you actually go in and investigate these things, and you look and see, you realize that there's nothing to be concerned about. There's nothing to be afraid of. Okay, We have truth. It is the truth. God, in, in, by the superintending of his Holy Spirit, has brought this stuff um, through the ages, through 2,000 years. And through corruption and everything else, we have his word. Okay? Should there be any concern uh, that what we have is not an accurate version of what was written 2,000 years ago? No. Yes, there are perhaps 400,000 variants in the New Testament manuscripts, but that number is a result of the enormous number of manuscripts that we have. By definition, more manuscripts equals more variants. The vast majority of the variants are inconsequential. And in most cases, we're able to determine the specific type of variant and thereby determine the actual text. No essential doctrine of the Christian faith is at stake. No, we probably don't have copies of copies of copies of the originals, but 
the plethora of copies that we do have range drastically over both time and geography. And that's an important part of textual criticism because you, you want them to be diverse in terms of geography and you want them to be diverse in terms of time. And then you can begin to put these family trees together and understand what you have. There's no doubt that our text is extremely close to what the New Testament authors wrote and statistics which seem to shed negative light on the Christian faith sell a lot of books. It gives the world exactly what they want to hear. So, um, any questions or concerns or thoughts? Did I do okay? Yeah, okay, cool. Yes, sir? I just think that Yeah. Sure. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I agree. And, and, you, and you mentioned the Quran. I mean, like I mentioned a little while ago, um, you know, the, you know, the Muslims, they'll cut your head off if you try to publish something like that, you know? Um, <clears throat> and so they're not open about, about their religion. They are really trying to suppress the truth. They're doing what they accuse us of doing. But, I mean, you know, I have, uh, I have software that shows tons of these variants, and what we do, what the, the, the Christian scholarship does is recognize them and catalog them and study them to understand them, you know? Because if it's in front of you, you can burn that thing, you can burn that copy if you want, but then you don't learn anything from it, right? That's the same reason the Muslims are, are tearing out, um, are trying to destroy monuments and things of that nature, because they don't have truth on their side. Christians should love history. Christians should love science. Christians should love investigation, right? If the truth is on your side, you'll love those things. So anyway, all right. Anything else? No? Okay, cool. I really enjoyed the four weeks. You guys, good interaction today. I think I talked too much. But um, uh, like I said, next week, uh, Stuart is going to pick up on Luke. Um, and then I'm hoping, uh, if I can pull it together, that um, I'll be back in June and we'll, well, it's not like I'm going anywhere, I'll still be here, but, uh, but um, in June we'll do the intertestamental period, and I'm really, really pumped about that. So, All right, so um, Jeremy, you mind closing us in prayer?